welcome to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. This week, we're taking a closer look at how faith has become an issue in the Georgia Senate race. All eyes are on Georgia because that runoff will determine which party controls the United States Senate. And there are two seats up for grabs. According to the polls, they are too close to call. Georgia is now a competitive state. In November, President Trump lost Georgia by a little more than 11,000 votes. One of the races includes Reverend Raphael Warnock. His opponent, Republican Kelly Loeffler, has taken to attacking Reverend Warnock's role as a preacher and his faith. And clergy are speaking up and speaking out like David Key, who we heard from earlier. He, along with nearly 800 religious leaders from around the country, have signed public letters condemning the attacks. That effort was organized by a new organization, the New Moral Majority. It is not a tax-deductible nonprofit. It's organized as a political action committee. In fact, it's a super PAC. Earlier this week, I spoke with the founder of the New Moral Majority, the Reverend Ryan Ellers. We spoke by Zoom. But before we dove into the politics, he shared a little background on his journey into this work. In 2006, joined the Navy Reserves as a chaplain, Corps candidate, led change, communities helping all neighbors gain empowerment. For four years, ran some political campaigns, went over and ran change.org in the United States. And then for uh, about seven years, I ran an organization called Define American, which became the largest narrative change organization in the immigrant freedom space. And then, you know, this year found it New Moral Majority. Mm. You are a serial social entrepreneur in the faith-based space. (laughs) Thank you for that. Tell me what drew you to the chaplaincy. Well, I, I had always, you know, I grew up in Appalachia. I come from nine generations in Appalachia and had an affinity for service. But that affinity conflicted with my knowledge of politics and the reality that politicians were able to decide who our military personnel killed and didn't kill. And I didn't want to have to, you know, reckon theologically with the idea of taking someone else's life for someone else's political decision. And so my way around that was chaplaincy. When I was there, like 80 some percent of all chaplains coming in were Southern Baptist chaplains because they had done a recruitment to support the war in Iraq. And that was sort of their nod to supporting the war. And me as a, I was endorsed by the Alliance of Baptists at that time. And um, we were one of just a few (laughs) in in the Corps. And of course it was right after 9-11 and, um, I felt that the men and women that were serving, many of whom were my close friends, needed support. They needed spiritual support, counseling. They needed hope and comfort, and their families did too. And so that's why I signed up. New Moral Majority was founded in order to do a couple things. One was to reclaim what we believe to be a hijacked narrative about who represents the majority of people of faith in this country and reclaim uh, particularly the faith of our founders in which is Christianity in the public square and then the second was to really um, advocate 
for the people that we think have been most harmed and pushed to the margins um, by the current administration. So early on, we pushed an effort to endorse the Biden and Harris ticket. And uh, over the months, we grew to now over 800 faith leaders uh, across the country, reaching 22 million people in the general election alone. And, and through our souls to the polls, efforts drove at least 50,000 people to the polls. And we're now um, doing work, of course, in um, the important state of Georgia. Where does the new moral majority fit in the landscape, if you'd call it, or in the ecosystem of faith-based organizations? Yeah, so so new moral majority is a little bit unique uh, among faith-based organizations in that we're a political action committee at our heart. We've been specifically wanting to publicly support candidates that believe in the values of love, justice, and inclusion. A lot of people take stock in our name, which, you know, references back and recalls the former moral majority, which we believe was neither. The remnants of that former moral majority, however, are still with us, and they built a quite powerful political force on the right, I would suggest in the name of discrimination and power. We're trying to do the same thing, but reclaim our faith and partner with brothers and sisters from various faith traditions in the name of of love. And so we are a bit different in that we haven't been afraid to directly, in this unprecedented age, delve into the sphere of electoral politics and say that people of faith do have a central role in determining who will represent us. I've been a part of you know, faith-based efforts for a long time. I used to lead the largest multi-faith community organizing group in the South. So I deeply value the prophetic witness of all of our faith um, organizations, but we felt like in founding New Moral Majority, there was a missing link and we needed an arm of the work that could actually just delve right in to impacting elections. And that's what we've done by organizing as a PAC, did allow you to tap into or raise funds that you were otherwise unable to raise? (laughs) Well, I wish. Um, You know, I also wish uh, that we didn't have this world that we now live in where, you know, super PACs are being created and, and money is, you know, being shuffled around. No, I mean, we made the decision early on after speaking with a number of attorneys that filing as a PAC would be the most critical way for us to be able to have an impact and to be able to be of support to our partners and and to the folks that wanted to be involved. But we also decided that even though we aren't required to do so, we wanted to be completely transparent uh, about where we were getting our funding and where we have been spending money. And so in all of our filings with the FEC, we report publicly who our donors are. And and that is unlike other PACs, but part of that is because of the ethics that center our work and, and our values. How much understanding do you think exists among Georgia voters about what Black liberation theology is? Well, very little. But I do think that people understand who Martin Luther King was. And I think that although he was unpopular in terms of the majority of white folk in his day, we now, uh, of course, rightfully 
um, honor the tradition of Martin Luther King. We, we see in, in the Pope himself uh, someone who came out of the liberationist tradition that evolved in, in many of the Latin American countries uh, as he was coming up as, as a minister. And so I do think that people will resonate with the words of Reverend Warnock when he calls himself a Matthew 25 type of Christian, more so because they understand what that means for their own life and how he will vote and that the values will center how he does his work in, in the Senate if he should be given the historic right to serve in that body. And less so because they understand theology, which is ever-evolving. I do hope, though, that it opens up a new conversation about how our theology has been tied to cultural uh, movements and forces in this country and how we have got to reconcile some of that theology with our racist past. I think if we don't, history will not look well upon people who use theology to support things like white supremacy. You're using the pronoun our. I am particularly attuned to the fact that when you're saying that, you're speaking to our being Christian. Kelly Loeffler and the forces that are supporting her candidacy are trying to suggest that black liberation theology poses a threat the way that many see uh, white Christian nationalism as a theological frame. It is a bit striking to see how both of those frameworks for making sense of power and who power should be distributed to are set up against each other almost as this polar narrative that is intended to galvanize. But what sits underneath that is that demographics have shifted so much in the state of Georgia. And so you have now over 100,000 Muslims. You have a large, one of the largest Jewish communities in the South living in Georgia, in the greater Atlanta area and beyond. And you also have a growing number of Catholics in Georgia. As uh, Reverend Dr. Warnock seeks to become the next United States senator and is defending himself against these attacks about his faith tradition, he also is attempting to signal to those who are not Christian what his beliefs are, but using phrases and terms that may not be so clear. So like Matthew 25 may make sense to someone from the Christian tradition, but it might not necessarily fall the same way or be heard the same way by a growing number of young people who identify as spiritual but not affiliated or part of the tradition that their parents were raised in. It is not an easy challenge to defend yourself against uh, attacks against black liberation theology while seeking to position yourself as the kind of Christian that will not be exclusionary, that will not be one who views or gives preference to just one tradition. It's a great question, and you're right that it is not easy. Um, but it's way easier to do than if your theological underpinnings are those of the sort of dominant narrative, if you will, that is a theological embrace of white supremacy because at its core, liberation theology believes that God has a preferential treatment for the poor and the marginalized. And it recognizes that some people who have been pushed to the margins have been pushed there because they are not of a faith tradition that is viewed as centered or, or that is the majority mm faith tradition in any culture. And so I, I would suggest that there are some ways that Reverend Dr. Warnock is speaking 
to that, we're seeing a, a really rapid growth of folks who practice Hinduism and are Sikh in Georgia in particular. And in this way, Georgia and the demographic changes that, ha- that you mentioned that have been happening in Georgia are reflective of uh, our larger society. Mm-hmm. Our communities, even rural communities, have um, and are undergoing um, really rapid demographic change. And I think for some, particularly those of us that have been in urban areas, that change has led to a lot of innovation and growth. And we have been a part of some exciting new cultural norms that many people in a lot of our rural communities uh, have felt left behind from. And I, I think that's something real that we need to grapple with in a country that at our best is welcoming to all, but also creates a community where everyone feels like they can belong. Do you think that this intense focus, intense focus on the faith of a candidate has a potential downside in a society that is as pluralistic and as diverse? Is there an unintended consequence of creating such an expectation that people who seek to run for public office must not only talk about their faith, but speak about the most intimate ways in which it informs their thinking when they seek to hold an elected office. I absolutely think there's that danger, and this is where we run up against the reality of places like Georgia. I mean, you got to keep in mind, Georgia, according to Pew, is the eighth most religious state in the nation, the highest level of religiosity, the most number of people attending some form of worship in the country. And so, you know, traditionally, when people want to investigate candidates, and they want to know, not just what your policies uh, and policy proposals are, voters are left to investigate um, what values center someone's potential vote and how they will operate when they are in office in the the Senate for a whole six years as they seek to represent their constituents. And more than that, though, as a community organizer, I've always believed that we don't elect um, leaders, uh, at best politicians or followers. We elect people who we want to negotiate with. And when you're at a negotiating table as a citizen, what values are you able to leverage when you're in that negotiation. And I do think that for many of us, faith has informed our set of values. In a pluralistic democracy with religious freedom, it shouldn't, of course, be a litmus test. And I think there's a a real danger in us making it so. Mm -hmm. But I also think that that's why it's so dangerous that Kelly Loeffler is attacking you know, pulling out single quotes from Reverend Dr. Warnock's sermons and trying to use that against him as some sort of uh, litmus test when that is completely extracted from his community as the pastor of his church trying to shepherd them in any given moment. And it's it's devoid of context. I think it's dangerous um, to be doing those sorts of things in the political sphere. And, and that's why I think, frankly, so many faith leaders nationwide are not only coming out now in favor of Reverend Dr. Warnock, but are starting to push back very vocally against these attacks uh, on faith and how it is being used in an election cycle.
I really think we need to reclaim the language of religious freedom and religious liberty for what it has historically been in, in this country. And that's what we're asking the new administration to do, is to focus instead on issues of religious freedom that support pluralism, that support the separation of church and state, that uh, don't give taxpayer dollars to organizations that will then turn around and use it to discriminate against other folk. I think it's a dangerous game whenever faith organizations start receiving federal funds with strings attached. I would encourage listeners to go to organizations like the Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty, the Friends Committee, uh, Americans for Separation of Church and State, and others to find out the things that they have been pushing and will continue to push uh, in the new administration. That was Reverend Ryan Ellers, a founder of the New Moral Majority based in Louisville, Kentucky. That's all for this week's show. It is hard to believe that this is episode 52 of the year 2020, a year that has been like no other. We know that that's not true just for us, that we're all in it together. And we hope that you've enjoyed this program and we want to hear from you. As we prepare for 2021, we'd like to know what you'd like to hear. If you have thoughts or ideas or just feelings you'd like to share, I want to hear from you. Send me a message at voices at interfaithradio.org. A special thanks to our producer, Kevin McCarthy, and our founder, Sister Maureen Fiedler, and MC Yogi for our theme music. If you'd like to learn more about Interfaith Voices, the organization that produces Inspired, please visit interfaithradio.org. You can subscribe to the newsletter, to the podcast, and learn more about us. I'm your host and executive producer, Umbreen Khan. Wherever you are, I hope you are well, and I hope you stay connected. We'll see you next week.